Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Paul Sasher. I'm the editor of the GRC Professional Magazine. And today we have with us Naomi Burley, our Managing Director. Hi, Naomi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So today we are finally gotten to the point where we can do a bit of a wrap up for the AML Financial Crimes Congress for 2021. Um, it, was a, it was a pretty interesting session if you had the chance to attend. Um, you know, our main theme once again was governance and AML, but of course covered a whole breadth of topics. Um, so I guess without ado, straight to you, Naomi. I mean, what, <laughs> what were some of the key moments, I think, uh, that, that you wanted to highlight from the event? Um, I get, oh, look, there were lots. Um, as everyone, everyone knows, the way we construct the day is around including financial crime elements as well, because a lot of our members are handling the whole breadth across their organisational compliance requirements, and they attend this day to be able to get things like the ABC and modern slavery. So um, for me, it was really important that we include those. I think the Austrack address is always the keynote. So it's really great to hear from them about their continued or new concerns. And, you know, we saw the usual suspects happening, risk assessments um, not being uh, done. Uh, adequately isn't the right word, but, you know, they're still not satisfied with the risk assessment process by a lot of organisations in terms of um, anti-money laundering and um, and the whole governance thing. So the, the two themes from last year are still continuing and it's I think it's just a continual challenge. I don't think it's necessarily all about um, the quality of the people who are already in the industry or, or anything like that. It's They're really complex risks and being able to spend the time to do the risk assessment then make, make sure it flows through the organisation into operations and still have it be fresh and relevant to the risk is an ongoing challenge. Um, but so is resourcing. I mean, that was, that was one other thing that was discussed um, repeatedly in the session was that there just are not enough AML um, and financial crime specialists out there for people to recruit. Um, and, and Austrack is suffering the same problem, getting their staff poached after they've done a review. <laughs> so it's an interesting and challenging time. And, and that's why we've got the, the course on scope now as well um, to help skill up our members. But, um, but those big sort of themes um, are continuing. And I don't know whether COVID slowed down addressing them in a meaningful way or, or what's really going on. So yeah, for me, that was, that was the big takeaway. I really, um, I really got a lot of value myself out of the session on anti-bribery and corruption, as well as the one on modern slavery. It was really nice to have some really tangible typologies around that so that you could um, take away from that session the kinds of questions you needed to ask suppliers, for instance, to conduct some due diligence and see whether they've actually been actively checking that they're not accidentally or deliberately engaging in um, slavery or underpaying staff and, and vice versa. If you're now, you know, if your primary responsibility is around ensuring that you're filtering for the data you need for SMRs, um, you know, seeing transactions go through from one organisation you know, they pay all their staff into one account, you know, it's something that's a little bit odd or matches up that typology can also help you know when you need to report something that's, you know, because it's a criminal, it's a crime active, um, criminal activity. Um, and keeping that understanding of how it's relevant because SMRs are, again, not just about money laundering. Um, 
It's about the proceeds of crime. Full stop. So yeah, lots, lots and lots out of the sessions. Um, uh, I really enjoyed how everyone was able to interact and, um, you know, I still would have had a, wanted a lot more time for everyone to continue workshopping um, in the workshops because they were obviously really relevant discussions um, and very common challenges. Uh, but I would then just encourage our members to participate in the discussion group if you felt that there was more discussion needed around those areas and you wanted to workshop those um, further further with your colleagues um, and other professionals, then in that, in that discussion group's a perfect time to do that um, and keep those, keep that discussion going. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. It was really interesting. I mean, back in that corporate crimes bill and the anti-bribery and corruption piece was interesting. Um, you know, the comparisons, like, you know, looking at the UK bribery act and its emphasis on punishing those companies who have not done enough to prevent um, that kind of breach happening in their organization, but also her emphasis that she put on having good whistleblowing channels to sort of catch those events before they make it out to maybe an external yeah, <laughs> source yeah. to the newspaper. And that's, and that's the thing with some of, some of these crimes, some of these activities in the financial crime space are ones that you may only catch through a whistleblowing um, because again, this is a risk that involves an individual or group of individuals who are trying to be sneaky, who are trying to bypass your systems, who are um, maybe encouraged by the culture in the organisation, or they may be trying to avoid detection in an otherwise robust organisation uh, to meet objectives. So it's very, you know, some of the themes are very similar around ensuring that your culture is one where people can make um, are supported in making ethical decisions in the first place uh, and also that you aren't reward accidentally rewarding the wrong behaviours. You aren't driving the KPIs so hard that people have no other way of meeting their targets um, than by engaging in activities you don't want them to engage in, you know, whether it's um, selling where they shouldn't be selling products or, um, or in the case of bribery and corruption, you know, trying to get into a market by doing the wrong thing and yeah. putting your putting your organisation at greater risk. Yeah, they, they, that impact of incentivization in the wrong place. Uh, yeah. So the other thing, obviously, that was that stood out that everybody was looking at was obviously the tranche one point five, and I guess the sort of confusion and the lack of clarity in certain areas that we were discussing um, just before the podcast. Could you rehash some of those? Yeah, I, I think that I think that I was surprised, as were a number of other participants, because there was a lot going on in the chat for that particular that yeah. particular one, at how um, it's not just a 1.5; it's not completely fully baked yet. Yeah. There are sections of it that can't yet be relied upon because some definitions have not been set by Austrac. So in that instance, you have to revert to the absolute rule of law and can't take a risk-based approach on things because it's been determined that Austrac will define uh, what's low risk or high risk in particular incidences rather than the organisation doing it. So it's a little bit at odds with the way the rest of the Act's been applied in, in terms of the organisations allowed to take a risk-based approach and determine the risk for themselves. And sort of it's, it's a little bit of a back step from that, but also since nothing's been defined, it means you can't, you can't take the initiative and define it yourself. You, yeah. you've, got, you've got nothing to rely on except what it says in the, in the new act. Um, so, yeah, a little bit, of, little bit of an interesting one and 
probably a lot of responsibility for Austrac to actually define those and not have to keep redefining them all the time. So it may be a case of we never get any definitions and so you you know it it is what it is now or um, it may be that those definitions are going to shift all the time and you'll need to keep changing uh, your risk assessments to match it. I don't know. I don't know where we're going to go with it. Um, but it was it was certainly a very interesting and robust discussion that was had in that session around that in particular because that was the common concern from participants, I thought. But what did you think? Yeah, no, definitely. It was definitely interesting to see, even though it was supposed to be this, like, look at the legislation. I mean, obviously I'm not a compliance or a legal person, but I definitely left um, Andrew Andrew Hams and Julian Hunt's session with a bit more questions and answers. And I think that's how the event ended in itself. You know, it was kind of like, oh, we've actually just raised a whole host of new questions that we now have to find another platform to answer. Well, that's right. <laughs> it's going on the agenda for the um, for the AML discussion group at next month's meeting. Um, and, and there were a couple of things like that, that in particular, um, and the needing to work through that because that has implications for the, the training you give your first-line staff um, and the way you structure your and update your program and your risk assessments. So it has, it has real material implications for organisations to try and, try and put it in place, um, and it has quite a short timeline to do so um, yeah. from memory. But also, um, it it just means that we're just going to have to keep an eye on this space and continue with the pro professional development for members in this space in particular. Um, so the other thing, I guess, also looking at is obviously we had the Austrac speaker um, first thing out for the day. And one of the things that definitely stuck out to me in the discussion was discussing, and something I think was similarly said last year, was this rise in fraud um, elements, especially around, I guess, the early release of superannuation because yeah. of COVID and other types of government payments. And of course, it was we were playing, uh, talking before recording the podcast, you know, sort of wondering if that's affected in any way the the medium rating of superannuation as a sort of risky space. But as as you you pointed out, this has probably been an underassessed space. Yep. Yeah, I, I think it has been an underassessed, and because it's evolved in quite a um, complicated way itself, the superannuation industry full stop, um, the way it's changed over time has made it really difficult to anticipate um, AML and some kinds of fraud in advance because, you know, it was, it was something, it was a compulsory participation in one way and you were just assigned a superannuation fund way back in the beginning and now it's a whole different world um, so which brings with it other different risks more freedoms around it bring different risks but I guess um, from from our members perspective this is certainly something that they anticipated when um, the COVID uh, the COVID sort of um, measures were announced they were, they were concerned. So we had members raise concern with us and try and set up processes and try and make sure they were setting up adequate processes to protect um, superannuation members from themselves, from thinking, oh, it doesn't matter if I take out this money now, you know, I'll make it up later, you know, that's my money or treating it like a normal savings account as opposed to this is their, they've got to retire on this and taking out money now has big implications because everyone forgets compound interest. Um, but 
so that was a key concern that was raised very early in the piece in some of our discussion groups as well. But I think also the fraud aspect um, was was also anticipated. It's really difficult under COVID when you've never seen this customer before. Yeah. You've, you don't have any other banking account information with them. You have no idea of their other financial goals. You know, there's a whole lot of information missing for you to be able to assess whether they should be accessing their super or not. So, of course, they can they can submit any paperwork they like and the rate at which the government insisted it be available, you know. So there were lots of conflicting demands and risks for members. Um, but it's a temporary, because it's a temporary measure, it's obviously something that's going to have a long tail effect for organisations to have to go back and um, potentially compensate people. Um, you know, the ATO will be showing a lot more interest in the, in this space, I think, as well. Um, but it's unfortunate it's, it's something that superannuation funds didn't have a lot of time to anticipate yeah. and, um, and gather that information and sort of do, you know, it was, it was a very difficult situation for them to be put in. So, um, so hopefully the, the costs to them won't be ongoing and, and onerous, although I think from an administrative and compliance point of view, they will. It's yeah. going to be really difficult to go back and retro um, investigate um, whether they were fraudulent or not. But anyway, interesting times, um, but certainly a risk that our members had anticipated but had very few tools in their arsenal to try and anticipate or or head off at the pass or um you know put put structures in place around because they just didn't have enough data about customers in in many instances yeah and you know um coming down to the end of the day because obviously we were continuing that theme of governance within aml then we had um elizabeth jacka and carolyn hansen and paul durham with his interactive gaming session um i guess everybody's sort of looking at that governance and aml piece and defining it and looking at effective strategies was there anything out of that that you found interesting no i thought i thought it was pretty i thought some things were pretty consistent so the concern yeah. around the skill set and getting that balance right hitting that sweet spot with your directors and your senior managers in terms of their knowledge so they can actually understand the papers um is a continuing one but the recognition that they're never going to be aml experts so it's how do you put the papers together um, so that it's easily understood and they can track it over time in a meaningful way and actually execute their duties in a meaningful way so it you know it shows an immense willingness by compliance and aml professionals to meet the needs of directors um, and I think there was probably a little bit of still of sentiment, not, not 100%. A, a lot of members expressed how interested their directors are in the board papers and in, in AML and those financial crime risks in particular, but still um, not being met with quite as much um, uh, goodwill by directors uh, when they're putting together papers. So it's still a lot more effort, I think, um, and that sort of capitalises on Carolyn's follow-up session about putting together the papers, yeah. a lot more effort on the part of financial crime professionals to put together papers than there is on the part of directors to make sure they understood the papers. Um, so I think there still needs to be a bit of uplift there and, and a willingness to receive those papers more frequently. You have some organisations that are 
are very welcoming of them every quarter and ask really good questions, but we still had a mixed bag amongst our attendees who expressed that their directors were really unwilling to get that report even more than once a year, you know. So, and that's not, um, considering what a moving feast these risks are, that's not a really healthy attitude to take. Yeah. Well, I think that the overwhelming sentiment was that um, anything financial crime related should really be a fixed item on the, yeah. the board. With, with more agenda. frequency than a lot of boards are seeing them at the moment, yeah. which is a lot of work and, again, goes back to resourcing. It's a lot of work for financial crime professionals to put these papers together in a meaningful way and make sure it's not just full of guff or technical terms and, and that it actually illustrates a clear risk that they can understand and make decisions about. Um, but there aren't enough bodies. There aren't enough people who can do that and, and conduct the day-to-day -day work that also still needs to be done. So we need a lot more professionals in this space and we need a lot more organisations that are willing to pay for professionals to be in this space in their organisation. Um, you know, and, and I think that financial crime and, and AML is actually at the forefront of redefining what governance is. Hmm. Um, uh, for a really long time, the terms of governance has been dictated by directors, yeah. um, a little bit by APRA. <laughs> um, but I think in a whole new way, these complex risks and the implication for strategic business decisions um, is finally being appreciated and it's reframing the way that it's thought about. It's not just that it's in the board papers, it's that there's a structure for escalation of issues that the decisions come back down, that actions are taken and, you know, that that's all appropriate to the information that's been supplied to the board and that awareness and, and professional approach to those risks. And I think it's redefining, um, yeah, that, that picture of governance and the involvement of senior management, um, you know, how real the three lines of accountability really are, how, how real your accountability structure is. And that encompasses your anti-bribery and corruption and your modern slavery statements and your sanctions arrangements and all the other financial crime risks. You've got your full controls as well, um, pulling into that governance structure. It's not just someone's job in compliance or in financial crime to deal with that. It falls very fairly and squarely um, at the top of the pyramid. So, you know, it's sort of a watch this space for redefining governance if, um, and, and bringing that up. And, and making it a more disciplined practice, I think. Yeah, excellent. Well, I think we've come to the end. Um, and definitely anybody who is not yet a part of the AML networking group, I am guarantee that some of these issues are going to find themselves on those agendas as well. So go on the events page, <laughs> sign up. Um, and sign up, yes. Yeah. And we'll be setting up the meetings as events um, going forward as well so that we can manage the people who are actually RSVPing and sending out papers and, and having an agenda up there. Um, so keep an eye out for that. But in the meantime, just sign up to it on the, on the events page. Excellent. Any final words or wisdom um, that you might have for members who are just... If you, weren't at the event, if you weren't at the <laughs> event, you need to be there next year. Um, like I said, we are going to try and have quarterly professional development events for this space and workshop a bit more. It'll all still be happening virtually because our members have indicated that they're not yet able to travel or don't have a travel budget any longer. So we will all be online for um, 
quite a while to come, I think. But also, um, as we discussed on the day, GRCI has on scope the anti-money laundering um, qualifications, and we are very definitely including in our materials and assessment um, processes elements of financial crime as well. So making sure we cover that as well. It's not just an AML course. It encompasses the other areas of financial crime as we know it. Um, and uh, they are being launched, a pilot's going to be launched in May with ongoing courses scheduled um, following that. So make sure you keep an eye out for those if you feel that this is a skill set area you want to improve. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time again, Monty and Naomi, and see you next time. Thank you, everyone. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute, and the music was produced by Rob Neary.